Welcome everyone to the first episode of Sound Bites for 2024. My name is Bill Bench. I am an operating partner here with Battery Ventures, and I'm excited to welcome our guest for today, Carrie Lou Dietrich. Carrie Lou is a renowned expert in marketing, having started her career at companies like BEA and Oracle. She then evolved to going to slightly smaller companies and joined Atlassian and helped shepherd them through their high growth years and through their IPO as their CMO. And now is a renowned advisor out in the SaaS software world and is helping companies like Bill.com, Miro, Segment, and 1Password. She's got a big focus on learning and continual education as a professional and as an executive. We're going to talk about marketing's role in the supply chain of sales and her thought that marketing's role is to make sales successful, a fun topic to cover. We're going to talk about bottoms-up planning and the importance of matching that with the tops-down plan as companies go to build their next fiscal year plans. And then lastly, a fun one. She's going to talk about too much detail sometimes makes you look junior, so how to really be executive. Those of you new to the show, Soundbites is a podcast where we discuss all things go-to-market. We bring on marketers, we bring on sellers, and we bring on customer success executives to share their experiences and their background. And I want to welcome my guest, Carrie Lou Diedrich, to the first Soundbites of 2024. Thanks, Bill. I'm so happy to be here. I always enjoy our interactions. You have such great and unique points of view, so I thought as a guest... Uh, what better person to come in and talk about go-to-market related, related topics than you? Well, thanks. I'm really excited. And I've been listening to a number of your YouTubes, which I hope you repost as podcasts. You've had some great guests. Yeah, this is our first time doing a podcast version of this. We've typically done live webinars, but this time we are doing podcasts so that we can actually reach a larger audience. So I'm excited to have you as the first one doing that with me. We have a few topics that I'd love to get your opinions on. Let's start at one that's an easy place to go to, which is career and building your career. So as I mentioned at the beginning, you worked and started your career at a number of large software companies where you got your skill set, where you amassed training, where people built frameworks into you. Is that a good process, a good path for young marketers to follow? Do you recommend that people that are maybe newer coming out of college now that are pursuing a marketing career that they start at big companies and then grow themselves up to going to smaller companies? So the most important place is to be someplace you can really learn. And I just wrote a blog. I started a blog at carrylou.com last week about Lars Nilsson, who's the head of the global sales development at Snowflake. And he was talking about the beginning of his career starting at Xerox. And he had like 11 months of training in sales to just become this elite salesperson. And I had eight weeks of um, training where we lived somewhere at, a, at this company called UUNet, which was this internet giant where I just learned so many skills inside and out. And then to your point, going to bigger companies where they're doing things world-class ways, we have the budget to hire top consultants, you work with people who are established business people, is a really great way to get the skills that you can then take to smaller companies and be an expert and help them grow. But sometimes it's hard to start your career somewhere that everyone is kind of learning by the seat of their pants. Yeah, I really like the nuance there because learning is to me the takeaway from that. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about big or small, it's about where you're going to actually where you're going to actually 
take on responsibilities and grow yourself. I actually have a mentor of mine who has dialed me into a concept that he shared. I don't know who invented it, but he shared it with me. And he said that your career is made up of three stages, learn, earn, and return. Mm-hmm. He said you start by learning your craft, learning your skill. Then you start earning your reputation, maybe earning some money as well. And then you get to a stage where you start returning it. But he says, but you collect those along the way. So you don't stop learning when you get to the earning stage. You keep learning while you're earning. And so that you just keep amassing those skill sets. So I really like the focus on the learning there. Another question around the career area, Carrie Lou, marketing specifically for SaaS software companies has a tremendous amount of functions underneath it. CMOs today run demand gen, they run product marketing, they run communications, they run corporate marketing events and websites and things like that. So there's a lot of different places in marketing to build your skill set. I'm curious for you, when you evaluate marketing talent, do you look for somebody that came in and was an expert in their domain? Like I'm a product marketer and I start off as an individual, I become maybe a product marketing manager, then a director, and then a VP, and then I move myself up through that silo? Or do you look for somebody that hops across those different functions that maybe I did product marketing for a few years, now I move over to demand gen? Like what's the archetype for you to look for somebody that you're gonna hire? There's a, root, a lot of different ways to build a fantastic career. Deep expertise is one and cross-training is another. It really depends on what job you're expected to do and want to do. So when I was in my 20s, I was working for a founder, Glenn Kelman, who's now the CEO of Redfin. And he was the CMO. He was a founder. I decided I wanted to be a CMO. And so I had read some article about GE that said that every two, they had a leadership program where every two years people would rotate through different parts of the business to become thoughtful about how it all fit together to become a top executive. And in my career, I cross-trained in every single different marketing expertise. I started off in sales, as I told you. I went into public relations and analyst relations. I went into demand generation. I ran product marketing for $150 million product line growing at 70% at BEA. I went into advertising at Oracle. I really tried to fill out each of the different areas so I understood how they fit together. If I were hiring a head of data analytics, I don't necessarily need them to be a generalist if they're excited to be in that role, but if they're trying to move into higher stages of management, you know, even the move from CMO to COO, which or CEO, which is a move for a number of CMOs, requires that you then get expertise and insights into other parts of the business. So it depends on what the objective is. Yeah, that's fair. Was that scary for you when you were making some of those moves? You know, like you go from being a freshman to a senior and then you it's like becoming a freshman over again to go over and make a move from like sales to advertising. So one of the great parts about working for a bigger company is that if you build up social capital by being a person who shows up and does great work, you can take on opportunities in different functions without going from being a senior to a freshman. So I was at a company where some people came and went, we got acquired, we got acquired again. That's actually how I ended up at Oracle. And each time someone would leave, I would, or there was just a white space, I would lean into that and say, hey, I wanna take that on. Can I be interim? Can I take that role? One time I even made up an entirely new role that didn't even exist. I pitched this role when BEA was, when Plumtree was acquired by BEA, 
I wasn't getting along with the CMO at the time. Uh, but I really wanted to kind of keep contributing. I was excited about BEA. So I went to our general manager and said, hey, you're going to need someone who's going to be an uh, expert in everything that Plumtree did and integrate that into BEA. What if you put me in charge of M&A uh, execution for six months. I know all the systems, I know all the people, I know all the products and processes, I'll introduce them, I'll connect them, I'll run the project and your integration will be great. So I think it's not scary if you love learning and you're willing to raise your hand and do hard work. I love that too. I love the curiosity element. I also love the aspect of the hand raise and just asking how can I help? You highlighted a great way that I think a lot of people ultimately take on more future responsibility is that someone departs from an organization. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's that moment to, to, instead of trying to make a play and say like, I'm the person that should get that role. Before you do that, just say, boss, how can I help? Can I help the organization? Because I think that's just, I, I think that mindset just shows that I'm here to help the organization. It's not about me. Totally. I think people get hung up on the title, the title and the money. Earlier in my career, I just wanted the experience. If I had the experience, I could take it to another company and sell that I knew how to do that. So I felt like I could amortize my value over time, which has turned out to be very true. So, you know, if you think of the experience instead of asking only for the org to report to you or only for the title, you can have a lot of forward momentum in your career. And you become that person that an executive's like, God, we have this problem. No one's working on it. Do you think Carrie Lou would pick that up? And, and that's where these really magical things come from. It, it's like jobs. The best job you ever get was never listed on a website. Someone thought of you. They talked to you. So being the person who leans in and raises your hand gives you access to opportunities other people don't even know exist. I call it bench strength. I think what you called out was being that person that's renowned in the organization that a CEO or someone else above you can come and tap you on the shoulders. I have multiple stories of doing that. And I've been fortunate to work for leaders above me that I report to that also believed in the concept, which makes it great. It means that you just start developing that second tier of talent that when somebody unexpectedly departs or a change in the org happens, that you can fill that, you can fill that void in. Which to go back to your original question, big company, small company, Learning is the most important thing, but I would say the quality of your boss and peers is the most important thing. Because if you have a boss who's amazing and keeps rising, you just rise with them. You know, I ended up at Atlassian because Jay Simons was there and had recruited me and I'd worked for him twice before. So again, the magic of opportunities, Atlassian was a no-name, unknown, I thought career-limiting move at the time I joined, but I believed in Jay. And so I think looking for companies that really have a lot of growth so that you take on more responsibility because the company's growing and who have really amazing people because those people will help you in your career at this company and then the other companies in the future, those are two of the most important things versus just the size or number of employees. This is an often talked about topic in the go-to-market world, which is sales and marketing alignment. Carrie Lou, I'm interested in your opinion on this. Many of the listeners of this podcast are from smaller companies that are growing. That means that their interconnects, their, um, their best practices are just being developed. I'm curious, uh, since you advise many earlier stage companies, do you have a, a playbook of the top three things that you should do or some insights that you'd share on driving towards having a good 
interlock between your sales and marketing teams? The relationship of sales and marketing is the most important success factor for a marketing org. Uh, the marketing's job is to make sales successful. And as I mentioned, I was a salesperson at the beginning of my career and marketing did not make me successful. And that was why I joined marketing. Um, I like didn't feel like the materials were helpful to position who we were. Uh, I had sold a product to a, a customer that the company later um, killed. And so I lost this relationship with this massive customer who had, had taken a bet on us. So I feel a real visceral responsibility to connect with sales. But I, I, the most important thing is the beginning plan. I, right now, I'm working with almost all the CEOs at my clients on their financial plan because we know what the organic traffic is for marketing. We kind of know what the budget will buy. We know what the conversion rates are in sales. So we should be able to accurately forecast. And I think a lot of companies, especially small companies, get into trouble when they have a tops down plan that's not really been vetted by sales and marketing from the bottoms up. And so getting to a plan that has stretch goals on better conversion rates and stretch goals on more marketing and stretch goals on marketing acquisition at a lower cost is good, but a lot of problems that we see come up are, are kind of unrealistic goals about how many lead sales needs uh, to, to hit a financial number that's just a, an unrealistic stretch number. So I would say the, getting the financial plan right is number one. Number two, sales and marketing get blamed a lot when a product is not really effective or differentiated in the market, or we don't really know who we're selling to. So the CEO gets excited about some change. So for instance, when I saw in this latest economic downturn, lots of companies sold only to software and tech and first adopters. And when that market dried up after the kind of financial meltdown of, of free money or cheap money, low interest rate money, they said, oh, we're going to sell to the Fortune 500. We're going to pivot the company and, and talk to these whole new group of folks. And marketing and sales kind of tried to adjust, but didn't really get traction quickly or effectively. And then lots of sales leaders got fired and lots of marketers got fired. And there's this part of me that, that has this deep empathy for those people because Marketing and sales is where the strategy of the company hits the market. A salesperson has to go say, hey, I think this is different. And then a customer says, mm, I'm not really going to buy it because I'm going to buy the big guy or sounds like what everyone else is selling us. And then they go back to the company to tell them and the CEO is like, nope, you're the wrong salesperson. We're going to swap it out and try again. So I think that a lot of problems I see show up in marketing are company strategy problems around the ICP, around differentiation and around the vision of the company. And so I do a lot of work. I, I used to just coach CMOs, uh, and then I realized I had to coach CEOs and CMOs together because I had to help influence the company's strategy for marketing to be successful. All right, so I'm gonna react to a couple of these because they really resonate with me. First thing out of your mouth when I said sales and marketing alignment was that marketing is there to make sales successful. and. It's ironic. When I talk with a lot of, I think, CMOs, former CMOs, current CMOs that I admire, they almost always say something very similar to that. Uh, one, for example, is Chandar Patabiram. He was the he was CMO at Marketo with me, and then he went on to be the CMO of Coupa. And um, I had him on this podcast, I think, two years ago. The, he was one of the first couple of guests that we had. 
And he said the same exact thing. He said, look, my mission is to make sales successful, which I think is a very unique mindset. It's very specific to SaaS software for sure, because it's not like we're a, a, a you know a CPG product or something that we're brands like the thing that sells the product. And so I love that mindset because there's a level of ownership there that I see with CMOs take. So first of all, check on that. I do think that marketing has a very big hand in the success. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to work for a marketing software company for 10 years and mm. see the quality of markers come through and, and the wow factor that I took away from how well they set the spike for sales to, or set the ball for sales to mm -hmm. be able to spike was outstanding. So that's one reaction. Number two is, you know, on your your comment about the blame, I think that's an interesting mindset. I, I had some similar thoughts, especially when any downturn happens, and I've, I've you know, had the fortune in, of my experience of being able to live through a couple, is that suddenly sales and marketing somehow are mis-executing. And maybe there's part of that there. I'm not denying that there could be. But I, this last one I found interesting that I would sit through board meetings, I would sit through strategy meetings, and there'd be CEOs talking to the sales and marketing team and to marketing, it was like, you don't know how to cross sell back into our customers correctly. And for sales, you folks don't know how to message this thing the right way. And I was sitting there looking at the product guy or gal in the room thinking to myself, why is that person quiet? Because if this product's so damn sticky, then shouldn't it be just creating value for the customer regardless of what marketing's message coming into them and sales account management skills are? So it's interesting that you, you bring that up because I do, I personally, when you think about sales and marketing alignment, there's a really important third person that's kind of silent in that, and that's the product team coming into that. That's my And point. that's my pet peeve. It, it, you know, a lot of companies, We'll say, oh, we don't really have like big stuff on the roadmap this year. You know, we're changing platforms or we're working on the backlog or we're just working on usability. And you think, how is marketing how are marketing and salespeople supposed to go out to customers and say, like, hey, we're innovative, we're new, we're different. So if the product team isn't taking some big swings and making some thoughtful steps forward, it's very hard for salespeople to sell the old stuff when when other companies are moving quickly. Yes, I am. I am a big advocate. So, Carrie Lou, you and I are here recording this on February first. We know a lot of SaaS software companies finished their fiscal year last night. We know that one thirty-one is essentially the birthday of sales and marketing in any SaaS software company. It's the day that, like, yeah, there's a lot of other events through the year, but that's the day that, like, like that matters. You take stock on that day. And so, I always ask, what's the the equivalent of that? 131 for a product and an engineering team. And I'm a firm believer that whether you have a user conference or not, if you think in this mindset that every year, like think of Mark Benioff at Dreamforce, right? Mm -hmm. Like every year he stands on stage and announces a new cloud. Mm -hmm. He's trained that organization that whether we acquire something and integrate it or whether we build something new, we're going to announce a new cloud. And so that mindset, I think, is very similar to a sales and marketing mindset, but permeated over to the R&D side of the house. And I love that. And I've been I've, I've worked for some organizations that thought that way. I've literally had CEOs say at the start of a new year, our our you know, our user summit's eight months away. What am I going to stand on stage and announce? And it better not be a UI improvement. It better not be faster speeds. It better not be an integration. It better be something that- Significant, yes. yes. Significant. Yeah. And I tell CEOs they need two a year. 
I say you need a spring inflection point and you need a fall inflection point. You need something that's significant that we can talk to the market about so the CEO can talk to press, so we can do a road show and get customers to come out and hear about something new. No one wants to hear about what we've been telling them for the last year. And so in an ideal world, there's a big spring and a big fall inflection point. So true. I, I, was, I had a board member once that wrote a blog about this concept of ticks and talks in development. And there's ticks, which are iterative improvement, but then you need to have what you just said, the two times a year talks, the big hits, mm-hmm. you know, the big bang that, that, um, that gets the sales team jazzed up, that gets the marketing team ready to go and announce how we're going to go, you know, uh, get our customer, add customer value by getting this into their hands. And then obviously you go to market with that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Good stuff. Um, along this topic is measurement of marketing's impact. We know that, like, I'll start with sales here. We know that sales is measured on a lot of different factors, on the number of activities they do, the number of demos, that they're creating prospects, they're creating pipeline. But the key thing that sales is measured on is sales. You look at marketing and they have an equal or more an even greater amount of things that they're evaluated on. You think about uh, events, messaging, generating leads, different stages of the leads. But if you have to put pencils down, I I think I know what you're going to say. Carrie Lou, what would you say would be the key metric that marketers should be measured on? Like what's the top dashboard metric? Revenue and pipeline. My preference is to have the same goals as the sales org. And... um, weight pipeline a little bit heavier for marketing because that's our job is to get qualified leads for the salespeople to work that they've accepted. And so you're right, there's outcomes and there's activities um, because there's a ton of activities that are on a CMO's dashboard looking in his or her own organization. But in terms of talking about what the company cares about, are we getting enough pipeline? And if we are, marketing is doing its job. But the reason we need revenue too is because if marketing brings in enough pipeline and the company still doesn't hit their number, no one cares and is excited for marketing. And so making sure that that the sales team has what they need to close the deals, get the conversions right, uh, is a a really important part of a marketing leader. I think that's great. And I think it's so right. Battery hosted a CEO summit about a year ago, and we had the CEO of, I'm sorry, the CRO, Chris Dagnan of Snowflake come on. Mm-hmm. And Chris come, came in and, and he shared that when they go to their board meetings, their head of marketing gets up and talks about mm-hmm. pipeline. And Chris talks about conversion of pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them tees up the pipeline and they, they're responsible for that message. And Chris's role is to say, did we execute against that pipeline or not this quarter? Um, and how they made their numbers. And I think that to me is such an elegant and mature view of looking at it. Um, similarly, uh, a couple of podcasts ago, I had Stacey Epstein, who mm-hmm. is the CMO of Freshworks. And I asked her a similar question. She said, you know, look, it really comes down to pipeline. You you called it out correctly, I think, Carrie Lou. There's an output of what you measure the impact that the team had. But there's, meanwhile, a whole bunch of things in the engine room, uh, the activities that lead to the output that you have to watch as well. But mm-hmm. I, I, I do think for smaller companies, sometimes they become a little bit uh, overwhelmed or enamored with all of the data, whether on the sales or marketing side, they show everything in their board meetings. And I, I always try to coach up and say, speak board, 
speak the board level. And if they ask for more, then that's what the that's what the appendix of a board board deck is for. Is well, let me take you back to this further slide. But in the narrative to the board, come in and talk to me about what happened. One of my mentors, Christine Heckart, who was the CMO of Cisco, had told me at one point, "Too much detail makes you look junior." And I think that you know, if you're not hitting the pipeline number and you're not hitting the revenue number, you're trying to do all this justification and you're showing them all your math about all the things, you know, but they really want to know, are you on track for this quarter? <laughs> are you on track for this year? Are you on track for accelerated growth for next year? If not, why? You know, they, they want some details, but not the whole funnel and analysis. It, I agree with you. That's great. Now, Going back, you mentioned planning earlier in our conversation, uh, and you talked about kind of the pitfall of just doing a top-down and not bouncing out. Are there any other best ideas that you share with your organizations that you advise when they're building? Like a lot of people, like again, today we're filming this on February 1st. A lot of teams are either finishing up a plan or just diving deep into their next fiscal year plan. So any best practice suggestions you like to give? Well, it's funny because the first thing that comes to my mind is, and I don't know if you go through the same thing, when there's something that's obvious to you, but you see lots of people not do it. So a lot of marketers haven't necessarily built a bottoms up plan. Some CMOs have, and they know what it looks like, but at smaller companies, a lot of the team hasn't. Um, and so some of the things are just getting actual rigor around the bottoms up plan to help other people analyze. Like, so one thing is I love when the bottoms up plan is built into the tops down plan so that you can point directly at all the assumptions so that when marketing finishes your bottoms up, you go and work with sales and, and talk about your assumptions together. And then you meet with finance and then the three of you get in a room and or on a zoom and play with all the variables that populate the same um, model of all of these different ramifications. So you can say, okay, you know, if we look at our organic traffic and the growth last year and some uplift assumptions or some budget assumptions, where does that get us? If we look at our paid, and uh, you know, where does that get us? If we look at the sales conversion rate, exactly what it is because it's conservative, where does that get us? And then generally when you do the bottoms up, there's a gap between the bottoms up and tops down that you're trying to play with. And so the two things that are important are one, having all those models in one book so they feed off of each other. So you can see if marketing changes that, how does that change sales and how does that change the overall plan? And then the second thing is having as much data as possible from last year to keep looking at and seeing if you can push assumptions reasonably. So for instance, um, the last two months might have had some sort of conversion rate average that was like, um, 20% higher than every other month this year because everyone pulled everything forward to meet their number for the whole year, right? We know Q4s are big and, and look different. Or there might have been something weird going on in the data. And so when you have the historic data next to the new forecast, either at a quarterly level or a monthly level, as you're playing with these variables to try to say, like, where can we really push ourselves far farther, you can see the right data. And I almost feel embarrassed saying it out loud, except so many of the bottoms up plans that I see initially from smaller companies just have their plan and not all the reference data that helps you say, like, how can we change this plan? Because basically what's not so important is the actual first recommendation. 
but a model that can effectively be played with by changing variables together to say, hey, Bill, how far can you push your team? Hey, Carrie Lou, how far can you push your team? Hey, finance, I, I think we need to like push back on the board and settle here and with a plan that we all think we can meet, especially after last year when so many people had to reforecast uh, and, and change plans mid-year. I agree with that. I think that I use different words, but I, I have a similar thought process as I think there's the top down plan, which is we're going to grow 40% this next year and our cash is going to look like this, but not having all of those variables, which is generated out of the bottoms up plan is a scary thing not to do. And I think mm -hmm. that's really good advice because I look at those variables and one thing that you need somebody in the room to do is, is kind of go up to the 30,000 foot level and say, hey team, you know, there's eight variables that we play with in building this plan and seven out of the eight we've optimized for this year. Do we really, do we feel that way or do we just do that because, you know, that, that we feel like, like that's what the right thing to say is. And I think that's a really mo good moment of truth is being able to look at that and be like, wow, do we think that seven out of these eight like key metrics that we track are going to change in the positive for this quarter to be able to, to figure and, out the plan. And to your point, one of the issues that I, I mean, we've been, I've been working on annual plans for the last three months um, in really deep detail. And one of the things that I ran into at the beginning, and I always run into is finance build some sort of plan that has like buffer on buffer on buffer. So you're like, okay, we only had like two to three times pipeline coverage this year. We're going to estimate five to six times pipeline coverage next year because we want to really make sure sales has enough leads. And you're like, I love the idea, but like the world isn't going to change overnight from July or from January 31st to February 1st entirely. Like we, we have we we have to at least start with something that we think is realistic and then explicitly decide where we're going to buffer or just buffer at the end because when you buffer on all of the different variables, you can't really tell what's realistic. And if you get to a plan that's unrealistic, people start to lose the passion to achieve it. They just feel like there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. You just preempted one of my, like this moment in time, recommendations I give to, to CEOs and to sales and marketing teams, which is if you look at your actuals from last year and then on February 1st, you have some distinct difference like it could be conversion rate it could be pipeline coverage it could be average sale price of the deal and something has a distinct change why do you think the odometer rolled back to zero and just starts over fresh on february 1st like you might get there through the year and build the plan that that edges you up into the right to get yourself there but to just assume that suddenly february 1st or january 1st is a magic date that all that changes it doesn't it it continues of what you had I have to thank you, actually, because I bat phoned you a couple weeks ago when I was working on one of these um, plans, and you were like, just have them actually build the real forecast for Q1, because we already know what's in pipeline day one, pretty much. And when we rebuilt the Q1 plan into the plan, then the finance guy was like, oh, <laughs> oh, that really changes the plan. And you're like, yeah. Anyway, that was great advice. I'll, I'll tell you where that came from. I, I got my hand smacked one time when we spent a whole bunch of Q4 building a plan, roll into Q1 and have the plan for the new quarter. And it's like, well, what's the quota for the quarter? And it's like, I don't know, $5 million. What's your forecast? $4 million. Wait, you just built this plan. It's got wet ink on it. How right. can you have 
a smaller plan than what or a smaller forecast what your plan is you're like well because that's what the pipeline says so mm -hmm. um so that was a learning uh so hopefully hopefully that had some good impact there i'll tell you the other thing i'm seeing is last year was a tough year for companies they made lots of cuts lots of the cuts they made were in brand and and brand building types of things and you can do that for six months nine months 12 months 18 months and not see the effects but after that time period, whatever it is, let's call it 12 to 18 months, you start to see a decrease in organic traffic. And the organic traffic is the highest converting channel that we love, right? Like, you know, ask for a demo is a salesperson's dream. There's right. much less qualifying, much higher rate of close, much higher close rate. And so a number of folks are starting to see their organic traffic dip. And you know, finance and boards don't necessarily think about organic traffic, but I do, because you can't buy leads that are as effective as organic traffic leads. They just, they cost twice as much and they convert at half the rate. So I, I think that it's a tricky year for a pipeline with kind of organic being down overall across a number of companies or, yeah. or flat, like not, you know, not hyper growth. Hyper organic growth is what drives hyper growth. Yeah, John John Miller, who is one of the co-founders mm -hmm. at Marketo, he thinks about this a lot. He thinks that there's really two big variables uh, at the top of the funnel. There's how wide the funnel is and how much is coming in. And like you said, mm -hmm. this last year was hard and the volume of inbounds came down. And so what he spends a lot of time thinking about is the conversion rate of what comes in. Is if mm -hmm. my volume at the top is lower, then what can I do to change the, to bend the light on the conversion rate of what actually ends up in my pipeline. So how can I get better and take that, that mm -hmm. mid conversion rate and make it better? And I'll tell you, I learned that the first time by doing a really detailed bottoms up plan for the year. And I looked back at the whole year and was like, wow, that's such a big difference. Yep. Yep. So true. A um, couple more topics here for you, Carrie Lou. Um, this is great. Um, love your opinions and points of view here. Um, Something that's obviously very topical right now is the concept of Gen AI or AI in the marketing world. We see a lot of companies thinking through a few vectors on this, right? Like number one, companies are thinking, how do I incorporate Gen AI into my product? And then there's more of the go-to-market side of how do I bring Gen AI into my marketing motion, into my sales motion? How are you guiding some of the companies that you advise today around this? Mm-hmm. So the most important thing is back to learning. There's not really experts that are available for all of us to hire to run the program in all of our companies. So it's really important to create a center of excellence where, and by center of excellence could be super lightweight. A person who's like, hey, I'm gonna help facilitate some more conversations. So one of my clients and I were talking yesterday and I suggested, why don't you just start an every other week AI lunch meetup have some of your existing vendors come in and talk about what AI they're building into the products you already use. Maybe hire some trainers. You know, there's a couple of good folks that uh, I see running things. And one is um, the AI Marketing Institute. And the other is Nicole Leffer, who's a, a former marketer who's training a lot of marketing teams. So bringing someone in to educate your team and then coming up with a project plan for a couple areas where the business wants to experiment and really uh, focus a little bit more. And so 
uh, Lisa Adams, who spells her name like Liza, L-I-Z-A, uh, on LinkedIn, has a couple of templates for different ways and projects that marketing could use. But really, we're seeing AI affect every aspect, right? Can we hire fewer SDRs and have them write more effective, more personalized, more research emails faster? Can we obviously have the content team use generative AI to come up with better SEO titles or concepts for new content much faster? Can we use AI to analyze our competitor set and work on product marketing and positioning? Across the marketing org, there's so many examples. And um, you know the important things are to figure out which applications your company wants to use and figure out your privacy stance. You, you know, there's still not a lot of comfort uh, for a number of companies about sharing any personally identifiable information with the AI models who train. Um, but you can buy different enterprise versions that supposedly don't train, right? But you need to figure out what, what you want the team to use and, and how you feel about it. And then you need to facilitate faster learning. And then I think you just need to prioritize it and show it, right? It's like anything. If we say, this is a very important initiative. We are putting an intern and $10,000 towards it people will just keep trying to do what they're doing to be effective in their jobs. But if you really highlight what the product org is doing to learn and incorporate AI into your own products, if you're a software company, you know, if as a, as a leader you say, hey, and I like asked generative AI what I should, you know, to make me some slides and these two were made, you know, the modeling that we do is just as important as what we say. This is Maybe great. Maybe more. This is great. Before I take us into authenticity of content, which I think is very tied to now the impact of Gen AI, just one comment there is um, what I see in 2024 is, well, actually, let me step back. In 2023, what I saw was a lot of experimentation that you mm -hmm. just mentioned there of how can we do it? Like you said, write a better letter, do better research on my prospective buyer. I think that was good. And what I what I think is going to happen over, and I don't know if it's just in one year, um, if I have to be a prognosticator, but what I think is the process, what I think we're going to see is the process change across marketing, SDR, and sales teams of how they incorporate this. Because right now, it seems very one-off. It's like, hey, I'm, I've gone and spent a couple hours on ChatGPT, and I've spent 10 minutes on it. And so, oh, we just listen to what this guy or gal has to say. But what I think is I think what we're going to see and what I'm predicting is the absorption of new processes using this Gen AI inside of sales and marketing teams. And that's without buying a new like a new SaaS platform that has Gen AI in it. That's just incorporating what is out there and available for free today. But then I do think it will give a whole start to, and we're seeing it happen, a bunch of new Gen AI, very go-to-market focused type of apps come out. Mm-hmm. I, there's going to be a ton available in the processes we already use, right? Gong, Salesforce, uh, the, all the marketing systems, Sixth Sense, all of the types of products that we're using across the go-to-market stack have a lot of AI already built in. So if, if we can help people, you know, it, it's like anything you, we, that as a marketer you tried to enable sales. If it's something extra that they have to do that's outside of their normal day, the uh, acceptance is low. But if it becomes something that's just part of the normal way they do their work, hey, they open up this, this client, it says generate an email, it populates it with like the next upcoming event that's relevant, it populates it with a customer that's specific to their industry, and then I edit it, and maybe that all happens in the platform that we are using to track something else, 
um, you, you know, I think we're going to see like widespread adoption. It, this is different than some other technology changes because the big companies have taken so many steps. It's not something that's being innovated by the small companies only. It's incorporated into all of the, the top tech companies. So I think we'll see a lot of, to your point, just integration into the processes and ways we do things every day. Yeah, I'm already starting to see it. You called one out there that I think SDRs, um, you know, will they become more efficient through the usage of tools like that? What, one thing tied to the Gen AI, and I think is a good topic for us to maybe close on, is how do you think that impacts ABM and the personalization and really the authenticity of content? And I, I know I've heard you talk about this before, so I, I'm pretty certain you have some points of view here. I've written a bunch of articles on my blog, carrylou.com, about ABM because it's one of the more exciting things that's happened in my career. At the beginning of my career, when I was a lead gen person moving things around in Siebel, I was doing account-based marketing. I would research a company's industry and I would talk to a sales rep and I would send them something that was unique and special, but you just couldn't do it at scale. And then the other thing is you didn't actually know who was in market. So the whole concept of only three to 5% of your target market is in market to buy at any period of time feels like the most obvious but satisfying stat to hear because you're spamming all these people who don't care. And in this landscape of now greater digital tracking, we can see who's actually researching and, and looking at comparison reviews and all sorts of things so that you can be more targeted about it. So I don't know, I'm super bullish on account-based marketing because as consumers, we hate things that are irrelevant. And as marketers, we don't wanna spend money on I mean, like bad SDR calls that call you about something that you don't care about and make you irritated and have a bad brand experience. Like we want things to be so delightful and I'm embarrassed to say it, but like I've made a couple of impulse buys on Facebook where you're like, how did they know that about me? I do need that. <laughs> and it's like, I'm thankful for the advertising. Like they're educating me about something that's in the market that I want to buy and I buy it and I love it. It's a great spend when, when that um, all aligns. Well, I think you're, you're closing on a topic we started on. One of the first words out of your mouth was about learning, and you just talked about education. And I think, let me reinforce the message here. You just called out carrylou.com, a great source for people that are looking to learn. Uh, we're recording this podcast to share learnings of our collective experience and best practices that we've been out there. You and I have both name-dropped several, several people on this call today with great resources. And I think that's the the key thing that, that for all the listeners of this podcast that we really want you to take away is it's about continually learning. I mean, I'd, I'd love to say in my operating experience that I got the playbook once and I checked the box and it was done, I executed, but guess what? The playbook evolves, competitors get faster, the market changes and things happen. I'd like to say it's all skiing downhill from there, but it's not, it's really no. hard work. And that's why I think the continual focus on learning is important. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the authenticity of content. I think, you know, in this world where ChatGPT can kind of create everything for you, I think the individuals and how much you trust them become even more valuable. So I said that I'd been binge watching Lars Nielsen recently and learning all about his philosophy on, on sales folks. I like love Lenny's newsletter and Elena Verna and all of these people where um, they're writing content 
that has their own unique funny spin, so you like feel personally engaged, but you also really trust because you understand their experience. And I think Denise Pearson and the CRO at Snowflake you mentioned are gonna be writing a book together about sales and marketing together. And like, I can't wait to read it. And so even though, you know, that people are afraid of all this content being generated by AI, I think in some ways it's gonna make people even more savvy about filtering what they really trust and then the authenticity of, of content and the personality behind the people writing it becomes even more important. Well, Carrie Lou, I, I, I love the perspective. I, I love that you have such a unique perch in the SaaS software world with the number of companies that you advise. So thanks for jumping on with me today and sharing your, your experience and points of view. Thank you.